Well, our reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 14. If you're new to the church, Revelation is the last book in the Bible. So turn to the last page and work your way back to chapter 14, Revelation chapter 14. We're reading from verse 6. John is receiving a vision from heaven and is describing what he sees. And let me remind you that the book of Revelation is written in symbols and metaphors and pictures that we need the whole of the rest of the Bible in order to interpret what we're seeing here. Let's hear the Word of God. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead or in midheaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast and of its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So I've been asked the question, where is the gospel in the book of Revelation? That's a good question. It begs another question that we must ask first, and that is, what is the gospel? For some of you who are new to church, you're wondering what the word gospel means. It means the good news. We might say, what is the Christian message? What is the distinctive message of Christianity for the world? Well, if you were to go and look at another big Bible book, uh, nearly as big as Revelation, it would be the book of Romans. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 1, the gospel is called the gospel of God. In other words, primarily the good news is, has to do with God who is the first cause of everything that exists. In the book of Revelation, he is the one who out of nothing made the earth and the sea and the dry land 
as well as the universe in which we find ourselves. In the book of Romans, just after introducing the gospel of God, it goes on to say that the things that are made demonstrate something of the invisible attributes of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature, and that these things have been clearly perceived by people in the things that He has made. In other words, that the very making, the very design that we see evident in every aspect of our, of our uh, universe's life and existence have been caused by this God so that everybody, Romans says, is without excuse for not recognizing the existence of God. So the gospel begins with God, and the gospel concerns the Son of God, that is, the one who assumed human nature, whose nature is to be God, but who assumed a human nature so that he also has a nature like us. And the nature that he assumed from his mother Mary was a nature descended from King David, therefore qualifying him to be Israel's Messiah. And what we read about the Son of God is that He, by His death, is the final sin offering. And a whole series of offerings in the law of Moses as a way of reminding humanity that the wage of sin is death, and either you die or something else dies. And so Jesus is the final sin offering. And that by virtue of His resurrection, He brings believers into the life of God and into the presence of God. That, that, if you will, is a summary of the good news that you must believe if you are to be a Christian. Now, fast forward then to the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is full of God. I read from chapter 5, the beginning We could have read from chapter 4, which describes the throne at the center of the cosmos and the one who sits upon the throne, who is and who was and who is to come. The one who has created all things, it says. You have created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The gospel is about coming to know this God who is the creator of all things, material and living things, natural, angelic, and angelic things, all creatures, from something as hard as wood to something as soft as my hand. He has made everything. But not only is Revelation full of God, Revelation is full of Jesus and what He has accomplished for us. By the very beginning of the book in chapter 1, we are told about Jesus that uh, He is the one who loves us and who freed us from our sins by His blood, that is, by His sacrificial death. In chapter 2, John has a vision of the Son of Man, and when he introduces himself, this is what he says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold... I am alive forevermore. 
and I hold the keys of death and Hades. We read from chapter 5 at the beginning of the service. You were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here's the good news. Good news is good news of God. It's good news of God in Christ, the Son. It's good news for the entire universe, particularly the entire world. It's good news. It's gospel. So the gospel has been everywhere. But this is the first time in the book of Revelation that it actually gets a specific mention here in chapter 14 and verse 6. Uh, the, the preceding part of this particular vision, which begins in chapter 12, is to introduce us to the various forces that are around the world that try to keep the gospel under wraps. We've been introduced to the figure of the devil. We believe in the devil. You may not believe in the devil. We do. We believe in angels, both God's angels who are holy and the devil's angels who are fallen and are evil. There are these powers behind the powers. We sometimes talk about, about there being deep conspiracy theories, don't we? We're, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories around America just now. If you have enough time to waste on social media, you can read all about them. Most of them are a lot of nonsense. But I can tell you that from the Bible, there is a real conspiracy theory that doesn't involve human beings directly, but has been conceived by Satan and has been strategized by Satan and his powers. And the plan is death for people. The plan is disruption for the world. And above all, the plan is to keep the gospel veiled, covered up, inaccessible, to those who are perishing, as the Apostle Paul puts it. Well, this chapter, chapter 14, began with a, a vision of God's heavenly society, that is, God's church. And it goes on now to describe what God is doing, that is, what heaven's response is to the earthlings' revolt against them. Uh, the, the passage we've just read falls into three parts. There's proclamation, there's, there's an exhortation, and then at the end there's a benediction. So first of all, the proclamation. Let's look at these three elements. Three angels are introduced. Then I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven. Where he flies, he is seen and heard by all whom his message concerns. He carries a message that's described as good news, gospel, good news for the world. This is the third of uh, one, one of a series of three uh, descriptions that take place in mid-heaven that is visible to people living on planet Earth. Uh, we, earlier on in chapter 8, we saw an angel flying in mid-heaven with a cry, crying woe to the world, uh, with a message of wrath and, and, and uh, 
disruption and fear for the world. Then later on in chapter 19, we'll see God's throne visible in mid-heaven for the whole world, the whole universe to see. Here, however, it is positive. They're proclaiming this eternal good news. At Christmas time, we hear the story of the angels and the heavenly hosts that were saying, you remember bringing good tidings of great joy, good news of great joy, which shall be to all the people. Here are these angels bringing the eternal gospel to bear upon those who dwell on the earth. That is, those who belong to this worthy, worldly, and persecuting society among whom we live. This eternal gospel brings eternal good news to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. Because this good news is about Christ and it's about God. The passage we read from chapter 5, you were slain and you ransomed people. This has to be proclaimed. People have to hear this. It's the business of the church to get the gospel out to the world. That's why we send mission partners to the ends of the earth to tell people in little villages and in cities and in universities in major parts of the world. We send people there to tell the good news of Jesus Christ. We are here in Philadelphia. Why? In order that we might tell the people of Philadelphia this good news. Why do we tell them? The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10, how can they believe in one they have never heard? How can they hear without someone proclaiming the truth to them? Which is why the Apostle Paul and the early Christians resolved to preach Christ crucified. Even Jesus preached Christ crucified. He is the first faithful witness to the gospel. He presented himself as the way, the truth, the life. No one can come to God except through him. And we, his people, seek to faithfully repeat his testimony to the world. It's called an eternal gospel. That is, in some way, it belongs to, or we might say it stretches forward to an eternal, an eternal order. In the future, of course, when it comes to God, God has no sense of the future. For God, everything past, present, future is now. But for us, time-bound creatures as we are, we see it that way, and so God uses language we can understand. Now, this gospel is a direct, indirect antithesis to the vacuous promises of this age. When John is writing, it's the age of Rome. The promises of brief indulgence, which the Roman Empire excited in the the hopes of its subjects. The bread and circuses that were the way of distracting the attention of the people from their lot Give them bread and circuses, and they'll be happy. I remember being in Moscow 
uh, speaking at the University of Moscow and, and some universities in the region around it for a period. And at that point, people were still recovering from the effects of 70 years of communism. And studies were being printed and, and distributed of what life had been like, especially under Stalin and, and Khrushchev and so on. One of the features of life under communism was that the price of vodka was reduced to, what, to pennies, basically. So that everybody had access to vodka, courtesy of the government reducing the prices to make it available to everybody. And the studies were showing that 97% of the population were inebriated 99% of the time. In other words, it was a way of keeping the population docile during that era. And the, the Romans had the same idea in their bread and circumstances. But this gospel that we proclaim, this good news we proclaim, is designed to outlast all the passing fashions of this fleeting life. Here's how the Apostle Peter puts it. In 1 Peter chapter 1, all flesh, that's flesh. You've got flesh, the stuff of which we are made. All flesh is like grass, all its glory like the flower of the field. The grass withers the flower fades, but the word of the Lord abides forever. And he goes on to say this. That word is the gospel which we preached to you. The word of the gospel is an eternal word. But here's the downside. That word of the gospel is a two-edged sword. Jesus said that when he said, I've come to cause division on the earth. The apostle Paul says it uh, when he puts it like this. We are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are a fragrance of death unto death, and to others a fragrance of life unto life. The gospel kills as well as makes alive. Here in this passage, the gospel is preached to the earth dwellers. Those who have been addicted to idolatry, whether they understood it as idolatry or not, they maybe thought it was only a celebrity culture or putting all their faith and confidence in the state to solve every problem that comes up in the human, uh, in the human race and in our circumstances, or, or evil, whether they recognize it as evil or not. But to those who receive the gospel and believe the gospel, it brings great joy and is sweeter than honey from the honeycomb. But to those who resist the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is a call to repentance. Look how we read on here. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God, give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth and sea and the springs of water. The gospel begins with, an, with, you, with this, you must acknowledge 
the existence of God. What, what is it to be a believer? You must first believe that He is. That is, that He exists. Jesus said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. In Revelation, that only true God is the first cause behind everything else, every other causality. He is the first cause. And we must acknowledge Him as the only true God. And because all of this is involved, you see, the gospel that we preach has eternal consequences. Judgment is imminent, this says. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day to change course, or repent is the word that's used. Change course and seek Him while He may be found. And so as we preach the gospel, we appeal to people's conscience. We appeal to the judgment that's at hand. We point to the opportunity to change their minds right now. Why do we do that? Why do we talk about judgment when we're talking to the world? Is that not a negative thing to talk about? I don't think it's a negative thing to talk about. We live in a world where abuses are very often buried, where abusive behavior is very often dismissed. We're living in a world in which tribes of people are being put to death. We're living in a world in which people are being lined up, made to kneel, and shot through the brain. We live in a world where justice is not done. We really want there to be the judgment of God. It's good news to every battered wife who's had nobody believe them. Good news to every abused child that hasn't been rescued. Good news to every tribe that's been obliterated. Good news. Even judgment is good news. Because God will intervene and will bring justice to bear on the world. And that judgment will be, the, will be the entry point into a new heaven and a new earth, a new earth where justice will be done, where peace will be stable, not for 60 years, but for eternity. The Apostle Paul preaches the gospel the way I've just done in Acts chapter 17, he says this, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he's appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all of us by raising him from the dead. That is Jesus. So the first angel preaches the gospel. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now we've been saying the book of Revelation is a symbol. Babylon here 
is a symbol. Babylon doesn't exist as a, as, a, as a nation or as an empire when John is writing this, but Rome does. And the Christians had a code word for Rome to avoid using the name Rome so they weren't heard to be critical of Rome. They had a code name for Rome, and it was Babylon. In First Peter chapter 5, when James is signing off, oh, sorry, Peter is signing off his uh, letter there, uh, he, uh, he signs it off like this. He's, he's writing from the church where he is. And he always calls the church by the feminine she. She who is at Babylon sends you greetings. Well, he was in Rome. The language that's used here, though, is of the fall of Babylon in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 21, the fall of Babylon is proclaimed. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. The, the word great belongs to King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the great emperor of Babylon, when he says this, Is this not great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? He said that just before he was thrust down into insanity for a period of years. Babylon is responsible for the debauchery of the world. That's the way it's described, isn't it? She drank. She drank from her. Uh, in the Old Testament, in Jeremiah, Babylon is a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. A cup that will be dashed to the ground if her victims are to go free. So, Babylon then describes a proud empire, a proud power, a source of the moral infection of the world. The fall of Babylon is good news. Good news for those who've been deceived within her. Then there's a third angel. A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in its image and receives the mark of the on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength from the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels, in the presence of the Lamb. We earlier read, were studying earlier in the book the threats spoken of by the authorities against anyone who refused to take the wine, the Kool-Aid, that was an offer by Babylon. This is a counter-proclamation that warns of the consequences of yielding to popular pressure and following the crowd. And this warning, by the way, I think is primarily not for the world, although the proclamation is going out to the world, but it also has an application to believers. Wrath and anger. Now, I need to explain something here. Wrath and anger are not integral to God's character. Wrath and anger 
are not attributes of God. Not the way love is, not the way spirit is, not the way holiness is, or righteousness, or justice, or anything. The believer experiences the holiness and righteousness of God as mercy and grace and pardon and forgiveness and reconciliation. The unbeliever, that is the rebel who refuses God's love, who rejects his son, who hardens their hearts, experiences God's justice and God's righteousness as wrath and anger. In other words, God is not sitting around heaven being angry. He'd be be sitting around being angry all the time. My dear wife watches the news, and right now what's going on in Ukraine is making her angry. Angry at sin. And if she gets angry at sin in the world, God would be angry all the time. But God isn't angry all the time. God lives his life in perfect beatitude, perfect rest. God is not subject to passions. Passions are things that are aroused in us, whether it's anger or love or desire, whatever it is. Something that's aroused in us by something outside of us. Well, God isn't affected by the things that are outside of him. No, the wrath and the anger are the effects that people feel and will experience from God simply being the just, holy, righteous God He is. Those who have uh, cooperated with Babylon's economic religious system have drunk the wine of her passion they will drink from the wine of God's wrath. Here's how Greg Beale puts it. Babylon's wine made the nation submissive to her will only temporarily. The effect will wear off at the end of time. Then the ungodly will become drunk with God's wine, the effect of which will not be temporary, but eternal. The beast's worshippers will be tormented with fire and sulfur, just like Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Their suffering will be unto the ages of the ages, smoke from a fire that will never go out. Remember, those are all symbols of something far worse than we can imagine. And all of this will happen, do you notice, in the presence of the holy angels and the Lamb. Those who receive and confess Him on earth will be conferred with his joy in the presence of the Father and of the holy angels. But here, the supreme torment 
of those who scorn the Son of God will be seeing him. The very thing that will bring joy to the heart of the believer will bring terror to the heart of unbelievers. There's a progress in this this proclamation. The first angel offers an invitation to believe and be saved. It's directed to everybody. Believe and be saved. The fall of Babylon means the reestablishment of God's reign on earth. And the third proclamation concerns the final end of this age. It's a warning to the nations to repent, but it's a warning to the church. And here we find the warning to the church applied to the church in verse 12. In this exhortation, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, that is, those who keep the commandments of God and remain loyal to Jesus. The proclamation of the gospel has been directed properly to earth dwellers. The message of the third angel concerns last things, and as such is prophecy. And the natural setting of prophecy is in the church. And remember, this letter, Romans, is for the church. It isn't an evangelistic tract. It's for the church. And here the church is called to endure You know, we live in a time which is not a safe time for the church. Globally, the reports are coming in now, globally there are millions of people who have stopped going to church. This is no place to start discussing how, why, and whatever they're not going to church, but that is the fact that's happening. Not only that, women... Women who are noted throughout the whole history of Christianity to be the most steady and loyal of church members are turning their backs on the church. number of reasons for that. Here in America, it's probably the kind of patriarchy movement which unbiblically has inherited ideas of male supremacy, even entailing bringing that into the bedroom. Some people need to sit and read Romans, uh, Ephesians chapter 5 and what it means to love your wife like Christ loves the church. I'm sure there are other reasons. Abuse not addressed, ignored, dismissed, rationalized away. But here here are the issues. Whatever the reason, these are factors. It's not a good time for the church. And the danger, of course, is that some of these people who are not coming to church, for whatever reason, may turn away from the Lord and head of the church. I mean, the church is our mother. We need to be at home with our mother. So there's a call to remain loyal to Christ. And you find that kind of call over and over again in the book of Hebrews. So there's proclamation, exhortation, and then benediction. I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. 
To die in the Lord is to be blessed from the moment of death. This is an eternal benediction. It's kind of wound up into the warp and woof of the actual gospel itself, which is an eternal gospel. Here is the promise of eternal benediction, eternal beatitude, eternal blessedness. That is eternal bliss and eternal rest. This is a new voice we're hearing. And he's referring to those who are dead in Christ. Paul calls them those who have fallen asleep in Christ. He talks about the dead in Christ who will rise when Jesus returns. In other words, there is no idea that these people who are dead that we know who were in Christ, they've not perished. They're not the subjects of hopeless grief. Grief, yes. Hopeless grief, no. They will not be denied the glory of Jesus' second coming. We've already seen in Revelation the the martyrs, the souls of the martyrs, under the altar in heaven crying, how long? And they're told to wait a little while. This voice from heaven takes us to the mystery of the present estate of those who have died, and many have died in the last two years, who are believers. And what is their state? It is a state of eternal felicity, of exquisite beatitude. They are free from change. We are subject to change. Change and decay in all around we see. They are not subject any longer to change. They are not subject any longer to the passions. That is to being influenced by or disturbed by that which is outside of themselves. They are in a state of unalloyed joy. Even if they are conscious at all of the struggles below, they bring those struggles and they give them to God in prayer. The death of Jesus and his risen life has purchased for them eternal life. We, brothers and sisters, gain by grace what Jesus has by nature. I am the living one, he says. I am the life. I am the resurrection and the life. If you believe in me, you'll have life, eternal life. This is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. St. Athanasius taught this. The Word, meaning Jesus, creates. The Word recreates. Therefore, the Word is God. Our salvation is tied to that eternal and incarnate Son. Our everlasting gospel is foundationally the gospel of God. Now, no wonder this benediction has found its way into the offices of the church. This is the first sentence that I read at any funeral that I do. No wonder the Holy Spirit responds to it. You see, even the Holy Spirit responds to this. He says, blessed indeed that they may rest from their labors. 
we live in this world, laboring is the word that's used of life here. A life of conflict, of pain, of toil, of heaviness, of frustration, of suffering, and of course, eventually death. But the death of the believer is the end of labor, but not the end of what you've done here, not the end of your works, because your works follow you. They're not forgotten. Whereas the ungodly know eternal restlessness, the believer knows eternal rest. Paul uses that as an incentive for us to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our work is not in vain in the Lord. Those who identify with Jesus Christ today will share his destiny and will enter everlasting life. Now, do you see how radical this benediction is? It's talking about the dead being blessed. Nobody else is saying that. 2.35 billion Christians are saying it to the world. None of the other religious groups that don't quite add up to those figures, none of the other religious groups that are in the world are saying that kind of thing. It is the only good news out there, the good news of the gospel. Death has been variously called a curse, terror, taboo, separation, loss, annihilation. But here's the Bible's word. Blessed. Blessed. In a state of absolute beatification. Absolute joy. Absolute peace. Absolute rest. Absolute fulfillment. Completion. Jesus said, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Where's the gospel in Revelation? It's right there. Right there. And it's for you. Maybe you'd never believed in this before. I want you to think about it. I want you to take this home in your head and think about this. Here is somebody talking to you from Scripture, talking to you today, and telling you it as it is. No fudging it. No trying to pretend I'm talking about something else. Putting it before you. And asking you to believe it. Look around this room. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Various ages and stages. We're just ordinary people. But we believe this. We believe this. And we live for you to enjoy and believe it too. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would uh, just thrill our hearts to know that we have come to know you, not because of anything in us. Oh God, you know, not because of anything in us, but purely by your mercy. 
that your justice has been satisfied on the cross. Therefore, the effect upon us is mercy and grace and peace and love and reconciliation and acceptance and access. We pray that for those, Lord, who are undecided here today, that they'd find that. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.